Celta presents Hear the World Differently. Nick Doran is my name and I work for Development Perspectives. I'm a trainer with Celta at the moment. And my background is in, is in media, my bachelor's is in media, and then I went on to do a postgrad in critical linguistics. I found myself working for Development Perspectives, which is a, a fantastic place uh, to be. So Development Perspectives is a development education NGO uh, based in Drogheda. So uh, essentially what Development Perspectives does is it looks to tackle poverty, inequality, and climate change through transformative education uh, and active <coughs> global citizenship, but the, there's an emphasis on the, uh, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So CELTA, uh, which is hosting this project tonight, is a project within Development Perspectives. So it, it's a development education strategic partnership that was put together with uh, AINTUS, uh, Concern Worldwide, Irish Rural Link, and the Adult <laughs> Community Education Department in, in Maynooth um, University. So we're going to go into a little bit on development education. And then I'm going to, um, I'm going to introduce Tom, who, uh, again, as I said, we're, we're very lucky to have here this evening to give uh, his talk on empowerment and emancipation. But I, I'm pretty aware that everybody is, is most likely here to listen to Tom and not me. So I'm going to try and keep my piece as short as I possibly can. Uh, and we're going to do a couple of quick activities before we get stuck into the main event for the night. So the, the focus of this evening is on, uh, is on education and it's education through a critical lens, which is essentially a red thread that runs through development education. We're going to be looking at development education initially and, and what development education is and what the pillars of development education are. So as, as I mentioned, SAILTA is a development education strategic partnership. Um, and you can see the, the, the consortia uh, the, down below in the icons below. There are four pillars of development education. Critical thinking, systems thinking, problem solving, and, and active citizenship. Okay, so there are a number of resources that, that Development Perspectives has online, uh, which uh, Steph, who is uh, uh, kindly assisting me here this evening, uh, is probably going to pop up for you now. So we have a number of, uh, of re resources, including a trainer of training manual and an SDG, an understanding SDGs uh, uh, workbook, which educators uh, and, and youth workers can use uh, and community educators to run courses uh, and assist you in uh, developing and creating modules. So the books revolve around these, these four pillars of development education, as I mentioned. So before we get started, I want to ask one question of everybody, and I want you to put uh, an answer into the, um, the chat function that I mentioned that's down on the right-hand side. So I just want, it's a question that's taken from the Training of Trainers manual. Um, so I just want everybody to think about this and, and, and put in either a, a yes, a no, or, or a kind of, okay? So... Does, does education serve Irish citizens equally? So I just want everybody to pop an answer to that question into the chat function so that we can have a look at the answers as they pop up. Okay, we're getting a, a pretty, pretty resounding fleet of, of no's <laughs> from, from everybody. So no, so I think we're, we're all kind of on, a, on the same page in that sense. Like it, it doesn't serve everybody equally. So there, there are a number of marginalised communities in Ireland, uh, the traveling community, um, single parents, um, different marginalized communities that, that just aren't served in the same way by the education system in Ireland. And in, in no small part to do with the, the private and public split 
that exists uh, in Ireland, which which allows or affords certain power relations or certain um, privileged power relations to either one or the other realm of education. So, um, okay, so thanks for that. So we're going to look a little bit at um, at critical thinking and systems thinking. These are two tools that are used in problem solving and active citizenship. And then we're just going to do one more quick activity. And then, like I said, I'm sure you're not here to listen to me, but you're here to listen to Tom. So I'm going to introduce Tom and then we will... um, We'll continue on. So these are uh, aspects of critical thinking that, that, that are essential. So critical thinking skills, they boil down to analysis, evaluation, and, and inference. And then the, uh, the dispositions that uh, people have towards critical thinking. So these both uh, add up to uh, the capacity for reflective judgment. So uh, the dispositions towards critical thinking are, are, I suppose, personal aspects that both bolster the capacity to critical think, such as inquisitiveness, open-mindedness, self-efficacy, attentiveness, uh, intrinsic goal orientation, perseverance, organization, truth-seeking, creativity, skepticism, reflection, and resourcefulness. These are all aspects of critical thinking that we can apply to figuring out uh, uh, how information works within society and within communities and, and how we can pick out manipulation in communication or, or coercion or um, uh, different uses of power within and through communication uh, and particularly in education. But there's not just critical thinking involved in this aspect of uh, communication. So we also need to look at systems thinking. So systems thinking is a really interesting way of, of looking at communication but, uh, and education and many different aspects of society. The UN Sustainable Development Goals are a magnificent example of, of systems thinking. So you can see in the, this graphic here that systems thinking looks to take thinking from disconnection to interconnectedness. It's based on the understanding that everything that happens in the world is intrinsically interconnected. And if you change one part of the system, it will affect other parts of the system. And there's no way to avoid that. I mean, everything is, is quite uh, intrinsically interconnected in the world. So also, um, we need to look at things in in a circular fashion and not necessarily a linear fashion. This refers to the notion that if something is not working, we need to go back around and pivot and constantly review and look back again at what it is that's being analyzed or that's being looked at. So then also the difference between silos and emergence. It often happens in in, in large organizations in particular that, that information is siloed and that one part of the organization, like the finance section, might not necessarily share uh, information effectively with human resources. Uh, And so instead of of siloing information and education and our community resources, it's essential that all of these resources are put together and that information is shared in an emergence way uh, between each of the different areas that we would have traditionally considered silos. So again, then uh, parts and holes. So we can, and it can be functional to take analyses and, and take things apart and look at individual pieces of Holes. But as we go back to uh, disconnection and interconnectedness, it's essential to look at the fact if any part of anything has changed, it will undoubtedly have an effect on the whole system, uh, regardless of how large or little the, the change is. We can look at just even analysis itself. So analysis is refers to taking things apart and looking at small individual aspects of a whole and trying to figure out uh, really specific information within that. And, and it's something that academia ha- has been guilty of in the past, where we look too specifically at one really small individual part of something that we should be in some on some level trying to synthesize and, and put together to show how it's interconnected with all the other various parts of the system. So then uh, the final part looks at isolation 
and relationships. So again, it, it's similar to how analysis splits things up. So we can't look at things in complete isolation. We have to understand the relationships that exist between each individual part of, of any particular system. That's just a quick look at, at critical thinking and systems thinking as tools that we can use in problem solving and in global active citizenship. So th these are essential parts to the SDGs. And the talk this evening that, that Tom is going to be giving is focused on SDG 4, which is the SDG the Development Perspectives focuses on, and particularly Target 4.7, which looks at sustainable development and how education can be sustainable and how we can teach and promote lifestyles and give information to people to be able to live sustainably and create and grow sustainably. The SDGs are, are, are like I said, they're a crucial part to everything that happens, and they're, and they're an incredible example of critical thinking and, and systems thinking because each one of the 17 SDGs, which was signed off in, in 2015 by 193 countries, each one is intrinsically linked to the other SDG. Uh, so if something happens or changes within what one of these SDGs represents, it will undoubtedly have effects in different areas of society and communities around the world. And as I mentioned, uh, Development Perspectives focuses particularly on SDG 4, um, and on target uh, 4.7, which looks at sustainable development. So what I'd like you to do is uh, I want you to go onto mentimeter.com. And what I'd like you to do is answer the question, what is education to you? So I think this will be a good way of getting an idea what people's feelings are on, on what education is. This is a live word cloud, which means that uh, if one of the words was entered more than once, that word uh, becomes bigger on the screen in front of us. So it's interesting to see, um, I, I think in particular, the words like, like fun. I mean, education should absolutely be fun and exploration. Uh, I think they're hu huge parts of learning uh, and understanding uh, learning. So uh, power uh, is very interesting because that, that's what uh, Tom will be dealing with quite a bit. And then skill and curiosity. I'm going to introduce Tom now, and then I'm going to let him off uh, to do some speaking for a while. So, Tom, uh, hi. It's great to have you here. Uh, thanks a million for, for coming and agreeing to give a, give a talk this evening. So, Tom is an eminent academic and uh, emeritus professor of sociology from UCD. So, he has authored, edited, and contributed to over 100 academic works, including The, the Moral Monopoly, uh, which is a work about uh, the Catholic Church's influence on society uh, and culture in, in Ireland and also uh, Meanings of Life in Contemporary Ireland, uh, Webs of Significance. He became the director of AINTUS, which is one of the consortium uh, partners that we have with uh, Development Perspectives in Sailta in 1987 before uh, rejoining UCD in 1991. So he is a wealth of knowledge and experience and uh, just a very nice voice to listen to uh, generally. <laughs> so uh, we're really looking forward to uh, your input, Tom. And without further ado, I will let you off. Wow. I feel like I... Uh, uh, don't forget to uh, just unmute yourself there. And the, yeah, great. <laughs> okay. Uh, but that would be important. Uh, thank you very much. And this is a, a new experience for me. I have some experience of, of talking and giving uh, courses, uh, but this uh, is a new adventure. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, I can't actually see you. I believe you're out there somewhere in the iCloud of, of Ireland. Um and it, it's it's quite unusual to think um, that you're all sitting somewhere uh, out there listening to me. I don't know what that pertains for the future. But, um, yeah, I just wanted to start with something that when I was involved in adult education and I was teaching courses, 
One of the things that I used to do was when I began a course was I'd go into the room and uh, there might be 15, 20, 30 people in the room and I would say hello and you're very welcome. Now before we begin it's very important that we try and synchronize our physical and mental uh, activities and what I would like you to do is to close your eyes and uh, when you close your eyes I want you to try and also shut out sound and concentrate on some particular sound and then when you've done that I want you to lift your hands up in the air and to slowly imagine that you are a bird trying to fly and when you're doing that, I'd like you also then to stand on one leg. Now, this is going to be difficult because trying to fly and stand on one leg at the same time uh, is quite an achievement. Uh, but I want you to, to focus and try your best to achieve this. And while they were doing that, I used to leave the room and go and try and find a cup of coffee. And when I came back after 10 minutes, I'd say to them, you've all seemed to have stopped doing what you were told. And they said, well, um, yes. And I said, but nobody told you to stop. I certainly didn't. And they said, well, no. And I said, well, the main thing you've got to ask yourselves is how is it that somebody you never met in your life comes into a room and within five minutes has you behaving like monkeys in a zoo, that you're doing exactly what he uh, tells you to do without uh, any sense of uh, asking what's going on here. And the question then is, who among you began to think, this guy is having us on, this is not for real, I'm not going to go ahead with this. And if that person, or you, some of you did, why didn't you say something? Why didn't you say, um, we're being led up a garden path here. And I said, well, those kind of questions of not taking for granted or, or, or not, if you like, acquiescing to the existing state of affairs is central to, if you like, seeing through and understanding the conditions of your existence. Now, while I was doing that, I, I became involved in adult education and I realized that there was, you know, empowerment became a really buzzword in the 1980s. And anybody and everybody was talking about, you know, the need uh, to empower people, you know, to let them take control of their lives, let them be self-directed uh, so that they become authors of their own success. And it, it really, I suppose... Uh, took hold particularly in education, training and management. And the idea of, instead of, if you like, workers up until then had been, if you like, empowered through unions, and there was a divide between unions and management. But now the management, if you like, became involved with, uh, instead of, if you like, supervising and controlling, uh, and if, if like squeezing value out of the workers, the idea now was to empower them so that it was really primarily within the world of work that this notion of empowerment took place. And 
in a way, it, it you know, like many of our empowerment and emancipation, they are uh, very similar terms. And I was trying to conceptually distinguish the two of them because it seemed to me that there was a difference. Because at the same time in the 1980s, Jürgen Habermas in Germany was talking about emancipation. And also in, in adult education, people like Meserau was talking about emancipatory learning. So the question was, was that what was the difference between this kind of management training form of uh, empowerment and emancipation, which had notions of uh, breaking free from existing systems, systems of, of, of action or systems of thought, of taken for granted ways of behaving. So I tried, to, if you like, to conceptually unravel uh, these two concepts. So empowerment is, in a way, if, if you think about it, is it's about learning the language of a particular system or a particular structure. Empowerment is, is you fit in with the system and the way to fit in with the system is to you know, learn the culture, learn the language, learn the ways of being, the ways of seeing, the ways of talking. So if you join an organization, say for example, a bank, and you want to be empowered, well, you don't do what I did at the beginning of this by going in the first day and putting on a mask and making a fool of yourself. Because in banking culture, that kind of taking the piss out of yourself doesn't really work. It might work in education, but uh, you would just be seen as a fool in banking. So if you're going to go into banking and you want to be empowered, then the, you know, the, the thing is you have to learn the code of dress, the code of talk, the code of presenting yourself. And that you, know, you won't be empowered unless you, you learn uh, that culture, that way of talking. Now, banking is different, of course, from, say, the army. If you went to the army, then you know, to empower yourself is it's much more of a physical, literally, power. I mean, you, you've got to learn a code of being able, dare I say, to look after yourself, but also to be obedient, to be docile, um, committed. And that's, a, if you like, an army is a, is a total institution. You're there you know, from you know, morning, noon and night, 24 hours, seven days a week. But also then that organization empowering within the army is different from, you know, becoming empowered within something like the Catholic Church, where, you know, you have to be pious and humble and chaste and, chaste and, and, and all the, you know, the virtues of, of being a good Catholic. Empowerment is enabling individuals to be, if you like, good if uh, at what they are doing, at, the, at their ability to succeed within the bank, the army, the church. And uh, it's about getting them to, if you like, mold their way of being to uh, become a better um, banker, a better uh, army person and, and, and a better church person. So it moved from, if you like, a notion of specific training, like an apprenticeship program. I mean, if you're going to empower yourself as a plumber, I mean, you've got to learn the trade, or, or same as a brickie or whatever. You've got to, you know, empowering is about, if you like, learning the specifics of the trade or, or of the profession in which you're involved. But 
empowerment was, was was a bit more than that. It, it, it was about, if you like, making individuals their own managers. It was about moving away from uh, external forms of control to internalized forms of control. So instead of, of people coming in and you know being watched and supervised and disciplined by you know clocking in at a specific time and clocking out at a specific time and you know and, and fulfilling that they wanted to succeed. They wanted to be self-empowered, so to speak. And so therefore empowerment in a way was a, a, a very subtle form of getting people to compete against each other. So if everybody is is competing to be the best, then it is obviously in the best interests of the army, the bank, or the church. And that you, if you like, disciplining externally, disciplining people, and um, it, through that form of, if you like, rewards and penalties, it's far better if individuals take control of their own destiny, their own lives, and try and succeed. So for me. I couldn't call it a revolution, but it moved away from a very traditional uh, form of management uh, to, if you like, an enlightened, uh, but it could also be seen as a more subtle form of discipline and and control, uh, where the individual disciplines and controls themselves by seeking to be successful. Within education, uh, you know, uh, empowerment, in a way, is inbuilt into education, and that's specifically through credentials. I mean, so one of the things that a, a child learns from the very beginning, if you know, if not in the question nursery or in, in, in primary school, is that to be successful, to get the stars, to get the rewards, to get the attention of the teacher, you know, that it's in a, a, a it's supposed to be a meritocracy, you know, whereby everybody goes and. Uh, using their talents and their abilities, accumulates not just stars and not just good reports, but then you know diplomas, certificates, degrees, postgraduate degrees, etc. And so, empowerment is inbuilt into the education system, in that it jolts, forces, constrains people into achieving, attaining you know, uh, these different credentials. And so then that led to a discussion, uh, and you know, Nick talked um, about this earlier, about equality of, of opportunity, and that became a, a buzzword. And part of it is related to the creation of a just society. And part of it is also related to the idea uh, of um, um, that if everybody has the same opportunities to succeed, then the meritocratic system uh, will function better. The problem, of course, is that you can have free schools, you can have free universities, you can have... But we realise that, you know, uh, if you like, class inequality or or social inequality is rooted in family life. (laughs) And, And you, you know, if you have the, the luck to have been born uh, in a, you know, a substantial middle-class family with access, you know, to language, to culture, to, you know, um, facilities and resources, but also more important to a way of being uh, that says, uh, 
I will be a success. And that, you know, from, you know, if you like the beginning, there is this idea of yourself, which is strong, self-confident, I will succeed in life, as opposed to growing up in a poor working class, marginalized house in which a means of a discipline and control as happened in industrial reformatory schools, you are nothing, you've never been anything, and you never will be anything. And that was used as a, as a form of, of discipline control. So they moved from a quality of opportunity to a discussion about a quality of outcome. So you've, you know, it, it isn't about saying that you know, poor people, working class people, marginalised people, disadvantaged, uh, that they uh, will be given the same opportunity because you've got to ensure that there's the same outcome. So if 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 women, if if people from poor backgrounds, if people from travellers don't are not able to use the system, are not able to use the structures to arrive at a situation that you know the same amount of women as the same amount of men you know, go on to be successful in 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 banking, not in the church, but in banking in the army, uh, are in 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 any other organisation. So you know that equality of opportunity, uh, if you like, didn't deal with. Uh, the hidden structures of inequality that are rooted in in family and community life, and that that empowerment then you know, led to very important discussions. I mean, I don't want to think that I'm I'm knocking empowerment. No, I mean it was really important discussions. Uh, so that if, uh, for example, uh, the big issue in, when I was an atheist in, in the nineteen eighties was about women's education. And so, therefore, you know, how do we get women uh, to be credentialized? How do we get them so that if they left school and they and they they became stay-at-home mothers, how can we, you know, get them credentialized so they get back into the system? Um, so they get some certificate, they get some training, and that led to very important discussions about uh, the accreditation of prior learning because. We know that a mother that you know, runs a household of you know six kids, and they all thrive in school and go on to be a success, that she must be a manager. <laughs> she must be the most successful a manager because you know we all know that managing six to ten kids and where all they all become empowered means that it's very easy to run a, a company of six to ten people because they might be a lot more amenable than six to ten kids. Um, so this accreditation of prior learning became an issue, and then that whole issue that that came up about transparency of of, of different qualifications, and if you like, where worked in in between organisations and in between countries, and that linked into also notions of that came from America of affirmative action of making quotas simply uh, that you you know you had to take in a certain proportion in America of black students and those black students had to have a quality of outcome I mean it wasn't just that they went into the university but they also had to be coming out with good degrees and then it kind of moved also then that empowerment still to working within the notion of empowerment it worked it led to this notion of learner centered I mean the notion of child centered learning began to emerge in the 1970s. And then it began to spread into what does a, a learner-centered education look like? What does it feel like? And, and this is where it does start to blur in with emancipation in some, in, in some respects. 
because it led to a debate in adult education about was androgy, which is the education of adults, different from pedagogy. And androgy was was basically is about learner directed learning. In other words, that the there isn't a sensation that the adult is being taught, is being trained, but that they they are in control of their learning. They feel and they, that they are recognized as an equal, that it isn't a question that you, Nick, know more about life or, or the world than I do. It's just a different form of knowledge. And there's an, an, a recognition, uh, an acceptance of that different form of knowledge. And so therefore, it isn't, it, it's, it's less hierarchical. It's more experiential based. It's, it's more rooted in the needs and interests of the learner than in the needs and interests of the organization of the society in, 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 in general. So that, that notion of uh, androgical... Now, you know, part of me thinks that that should now spread back into uh, pedagogy because, in, 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 funny enough, Ferreri called his book Pedagogy of the Oppressed. It, it, it should be called Androgogy of the Oppressed. But in in a way, you know, even in some of the more enlightened, you know, Steiner approaches to education, the child is made to feel that they're in control of the learning situation, because it's all about creating. As you know, one of those things that came up in the word cloud was fun, curiosity, you know, stimuli to you know that your know, children are natural born learners. What happens to them is because of a traumas, emotions of the development of a lack of self-confidence, of a lack of self-esteem, that that curiosity, that, that uh, desire and willingness to learn gets uh, stunted. So andragogy, to my mind, is the basis of all learning, not just of adults, but also of children. So the question then is, I've been talking about empowerment, and the question is, how does that differ from emancipation? Because you could say, well, that's pretty emancipatory. So what, what is this emancipation and, and how is it uh, different? And it's, it's, it is about a curiosity, but it's, it's about, if you like, breaking down the taken for granted world in which we live and questioning why is it that things are done this way and not otherwise? It's a very simple question, but it's, it's, it's so rooted and that's why I, I, it's kind of structural. So one of the things, for example, when I was, you know, we all know this, but it's how important it is, is that when you go into a learning situation, instead of you know, standing at the top, you create a circle, as, 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 as uh, Nick was saying earlier. But, you know, you go into a, a board meeting and you try and create a circle and the guys will be dead right and say, no, no, hey, 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 I'm the chief executive here. I sit at the top of the table. We're not having any circles uh, because uh, that, you know. So if you try and change the seating arrangement, now that you might think of that, okay, in relation to boardrooms and you might think of it in relation to education. But, but it's also in relation, uh, you know, to family, you know, where, who sits where. Uh, so, you know, if you like, uh, there are structures, ways of saying and doing and, and being that are, if you like, ingrained uh, from the beginning in our lives within homes that go on to being ingrained in our lives within schools. 
And it's so like who speaks, when they speak, how they speak, the deferential ways of speaking. So why, you know, the simple question is, uh, why is it that, as the, the pedagogy of the oppressors, but why is it that the teachers always begin classes? Why can't, you know, a, a student begin the class? And why can't a, a pupil say to the teacher, you're talking rubbish today, uh, miss or mister or whatever. The, the language that a, a teacher will use is very different from the language that a child will use. And the child learns that this is, you know, this is the way a teacher talks and this is the way a pupil talks. To get them to think, does it necessarily have to be this way? It may well be. Emancipation then begins with, you know, if you like, personal development. It's about understanding how each, how I came to be the way I am. And it's about being able to change the conditions of my existence. So, you know, freedom is about breaking away from the chains within which you were forced to think and understand yourself. So for me, growing up in the, in the 1960s, and that's why I, I became involved in religion, is that, not involved in religion, I didn't become a priest, but I became involved in studying religion, because I realized that in the 1950s and 60s, the whole way of thinking about myself, the whole way I envisaged uh, of what it was to be me, what it was to be a, a good person, was to be a good Catholic. And like many others, I, I, I began to you know, try to question the power and the, 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 the influence in everyday life of the church and, and how they were able to stifle uh, any criticism, any debate about uh, the Catholic Church. There was more discussion because of, 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 of republicanism and Marxism about the nature of the state uh, and, and in, in, in the 1970s than there was about uh, the, you know, the power and influence of the Catholic Church which for me was, was, was the most constraining. So for me, a lot of my writing or a lot of my, when, I, when I say, people say to me, uh, what do you write about, Tom? I say, well, like most sociology, uh, it's trying to understand how I came to be the way I am. But the answer isn't at a personal level, it's at a social level. Because, you know, I used to you know, try to say, get the students to understand that if you're born, you know, male, middle class, Catholic, living in Dublin, growing up in the middle of the last century, you know, 95% of what is needed to be known about me is known by the social structures by which I was constituted. So if you want to know yourself, you know, you've got to understand gender, you've got to understand class, you've got to understand religion, you've got to understand culture, you've got to understand... And if you know all of those things, then, uh, if you like, if you're, if you're into the realm of, uh, of predicting behaviour, you would be able to say, uh, well, I'm fairly confident I, I, you know, uh, what this person is going to think and act like, as opposed to growing up in a tribe in Peru, even today. So... Understanding the social conditions of your existence is crucial to understanding, you know, if you like, to break free of those chains about which I was talking. So in many ways, then, there's this blur, and I, I'm, I'm 
I'm not confident that I know exactly where self-help books come in the realm of uh, empowerment and emancipation. Because in many ways, you know, I was a shy, lacking in self-confidence, poor self-image. Certainly most of my education made me feel depressed. And as Sartre said, uh, there's little that I remember that was good about my days in education. And, and, and I think it is because I saw it as a form of repression than as a form of liberation or emancipation. But it, it does raise this question of, you know, what's this relationship between the social and the personal? And it really is uh, that if, if you want to be emancipated or if you want to, to seek emancipation, then the first thing you do is to understand how you are being, if you like, dominated and how you are being oppressed. Now, when I started in, in adult education and I was teaching, sounds weird, but I was you know, teaching women about how to be empowered and emancipated. But the, the thing is, is that in the 1980s, the VECs were a very dominant force in education in Ireland. And they were, were very concerned about women becoming empowered. So they, they set about teaching them things like upholstery, cooking, sewing, knitting, um, and all these skills that any you know, good um, mother or housewife uh, needed to have. But then, you know, if you like, women began in, in this uh, thing to say, well, um, I want to know why I am living out in Kulak or wherever, uh, that's where I was teaching, and why it is I'm stuck at home with five kids, with a semi-alcoholic husband who's abusive, who dominates and controls me, and um, my only source of relief is to go to the doctor and to get antidepressants. And it was real kind of live issue about, this isn't about empowerment, this is about women coming together to understand the conditions of their oppression and the way in which men, not necessarily intentionally, not necessarily consciously, but structurally, were part of, of their oppression. So this is about then developing if you like, a language, it's about developing a set of, of conceptual, you know, uh, theoretical uh, tools to begin to, and not just on your own, but collectively to look at your life and to say, you know, these are the strategies and tactics. These are the, the ways in which women are ending up, you know, being... Uh, you know, taking for granted the idea that you get married, have four kids, and and that this is what a good life is, and to begin to question, and to see if you like, and understand the structures uh, that led them to uh, be, to come to be the way they were. So, learning then becomes, if you like, and this idea of transformative learning. And it was one word that didn't seem to occur. Maybe I missed it in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the word cloud. But this idea of, 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 of transforming, now it, it has, transformative learning is, 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 
you know, again, a, a huge area with the knowledge of education. But uh, for me, it, it's, it's real or substantial transformative education or learning comes uh, from not simply understanding the conditions of, of your existence and how you came to be the way you are, but it also is about changing them. So they, um, uh, you know, to go back to the old Marxian idea of the, you know, the, the purposes of, of understanding the world is so that you can change it. And I think that that's what happened in a way in, uh, in adult education in Ireland is that, uh, and I quickly realized that not only were the women beginning to tear up the script which had been laid down by, you know, men working within the, the VEC system. Um, not, I'm not, I'd say there were a lot of liberated, brilliant men uh, in, in the thing, but it's just that the structure of power within the VEC system um, created uh, these uh, structures. But they, you know, set about you know, designing uh, their own uh, courses of being in control of their own learning. And they also then, at the same time, began to take control of Aenthus. And since I was the director of Aenthus, I realised I had to get out. Because, you know, the, the not that I wasn't supportive, or not that I wasn't... But it was just anachronistic, you know, for a guy to be leading a an organisation that was rapidly becoming a... Uh, um, um, an association based around emancipatory learning, particularly of, of, of women. Now, it's not to say that there, there was also travellers and, 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 and you know, working class education, etc., uh, going on. Um, but for me, there's another dimension to emancipatory learning. And it is a, a question of understanding what is power. So when we talk about you know, that women were dominated or women were oppressed. Okay, that's fine. But what is the nature of domination? How does domination work? And in many ways, then, it was trying to find a, a conceptual framework which would um, allow people to get a grasp or, or to begin to have an understanding of power. It's not, it, you know, the idea that it's, in any way complete or in a universe, in a universal in the sense that it applies to all situations of power and all circumstances, no. But it's the beginning of a of a thing. And and as a my always my problem with um Marxian, which you know was quite an influence in my life in the seventies, was that it, it saw all power as basically being economic. Now, absolutely, I mean um, money talks and um you know, it's not rocket science to realise that uh, the vast majority of of power in the world today is economic power, and it is about wealth, possessions, um, income, resources, all of those things. And you know, Ireland is a highly class divided society, and as we know, uh, the world is becoming uh, more economically uh, divided uh, than it has been. And so at one level, you know, we talk about creating a, a more sustainable, you know, greater, big, and, you know, uh, uh, not big, but a, a more sustainable environment to the SDGs. But the reality is at the same time, economic power rumbles on 
uh, as successful as ever and the gap between the wealthy and and the poor is getting bigger uh, rather than uh, smaller so uh, for me that means that uh, we can't achieve uh, these things unless we are constantly aware of how power is operating that unless we we see it, you know, it, I think sometimes when I was growing up, I, I, I was my my mother and my aunt who were deeply Catholic used to say to me, you know, Tom, the devil works in all sorts of ways, and it was that the idea that you know that the devil was lurking, and that if if you gave way to bad thoughts or if you gave way to selfish thoughts, the devil would take control of your soul and you'd be gone for eternity. For me. Uh, the best way to think about power is to think of it as the devil. It isn't, I mean, I'll come back to this and maybe more so in the, in the questions. Of course, we are driven by power. We're also driven by love. But in, in a way, it's impossible to have a loving relationship without it dealing with power. I mean, okay, I'll come back to that one. Um, so what is this power? Well, yeah, first and foremost, it's economic power. The Marxian thing for me wasn't, that wasn't satisfactory. That's why you know, I went to uh, look increasingly at Pierre Bourdieu, who is this French uh, sociologist. And he, what was interesting, he had these other forms of power. And that, you know, again, that yes, economic power was crucial, but we also had to look at things like political power and social power. And political power is the power of the state, okay, it's sine qua non, that one of the ways of dealing with economic power is to have more just uh, equitable laws introduced by the state that, if you like, limits and curtails the activities of capitalists driven by greed and self-interest. And then there's also social power, which is that, you know, even people... You know, they want recognition. They want people want, uh, if you like, to be accepted within their group, to be accepted. So that's why you know a lot of capitalists you know move from economic power into you know charity and into maintaining their good name. Dennis O'Brien is very good at this, wanting to be seen not as a greedy capitalist, but seen as a good person who is seeking to make the world a better place for everybody, not just for himself. So uh, there, there are other forms of power which are, are important. The main one is cultural power, which is about, for Bourdieu, it was primarily about education. But it's, it can also be seen as an understanding of, uh, if you like, informal education of culture and the importance of the arts, the importance of trying to see and understand the world differently through literature, through film, through, if you like, the arts in general, but also, more importantly, through religion. So you know, just you know, kind of personally, my, one of my interests at the moment is, is how can we create a more sustainable environment if we're working within the existing world religions, uh, you know, how is it, would it be possible to create a religion based on, on what the meaning of life is and what a good life is uh, without the notion of necessarily being Christian, Muslim or Judaic or Hindu? The problem, again, going back to this transformative um, thing, is that if we have a, this understanding of power and see, if you like, 
what type of power is being operated. So I didn't go into it in, in the article, but the, the other form of power that has really got to do with symbolic domination and symbolic violence uh, in its extreme forms. And this is what has been centered to the Me Too movement. You know, it keeps on raising its head every now and again in, in the same way as Black Lives Matters. I mean, in that gender equality, women's rights, you know, gets raised and then it dies down and male oppression just kind of seeps back in. And then the Me Too movement, Harvey Weinstein comes up and it raises up its head again. And in the same way as Black Lives Matter is, is being raised at the moment. And symbolic domination is uh, the way in which you fall back so easily and so quickly into the existing ways of being. Uh, so i give you another example. We realize we're destroying the uh, planet through excessive consumerism, uh, through being stimulated to fulfill needs and interests for goods and products that we don't really need to survive. But it's the sine qua non of how the capitalist system works. And everybody is immediately kind of assuming we've got to get back shopping. We've got to get back to consuming because the whole uh, shebang will collapse. And that's what I mean about, like, it, you know, nobody, even, well, maybe, I haven't heard many, saying, please, please don't go back shopping. Please, please stop consuming. We're destroying the planet uh, by trying to fulfill endless desires that have been stimulated through the market and the media. Now is an opportunity to stop doing this. And that's what I mean, is that in as much as, you know, uh, you go into a boardroom and there's you know ways of seating and ways of thinking and and talking. Likewise, you know we walk in and you know to you know whatever shopping centre we live near, and immediately the structure, the, the the very way that things are set up, is to get us back into that way of being, that way of thinking. So emancipation is trying to find out the way in which. You know, not just men or not just white people dominate and oppress you, but that uh, it's also at a more subtle level in terms of the market and the media. So, yes, emancipation is, yeah, about you know personal transformation, about personal development. But really, it's you're know, whistling in the wind unless you deal with the the social uh, dimension, unless you deal with power in its in its various dimensions. And that's why empowerment is about individual learning. But for me, emancipation is about collaborative learning. You know, whether it's about black people learning to understand you know, the conditions of being symbolically and violently dominated by white people or women understanding what it is to be symbolically and violently dominated by men. But it's only by coming together and, if you like, a collective emergence, a collective learning of a sharing of experiences. But I, I think that, that it's, it's not just simply, for me, a talking shop. It has to be conceptually, it has to be theoretically uh, based. You know, what is the nature of power? How does it operate? So that as much as I went around trying to be aware and looking out for the devil, we see power and the way it can, if you like, subtly take control of our souls. You know, what I mean by soul is the essential characteristic of what it is to live a meaningful life and to live a good life. And that, you know, whereas love can sustain that and, 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 and help it, power can 
you know, lead to more individual thinking towards the satisfaction of, of individual needs and interests, which can undermine uh, the collective. And so that's why the women's movement were right, and particularly in, within adult education, when they said that the personal is political. Yes, that it starts at the level of the individual, because each woman is living with, if you like, within the structures and the conditions of existence of patriarchal domination, which can be, if you like, unintentional and unconscious, but nevertheless continuous and uh, uh, perfidious. But it also requires something else. Uh, it requires that those who are in positions of power uh, to continually critically self-reflect about the ways in which they unintentionally or unconsciously dominate. So if you're with a partner and your partner keeps on saying to you, did you ever notice the way you talk when everybody else uh, is forced uh, to listen? So I've been guilty of this again and allowed myself to ramble on because I think I'm worth it and because I think my voice and my opinions are the best ever. But you need somebody to critically reflect and say to you, you use your emotions to uh, to control me. You know, you withdraw your love as a form of uh, exercising power. Or you become angry or you become passive-aggressive when any time I mention, uh, you know, visiting my parents. Now, these are all the ways in which we exercise power operate, you know, within families as well as they operate within organizations. So, to be a good adult educator, then the first thing you have to do, from my mind, is not only to be critically reflective about the way uh, power operates, but you have to be, if you like, engage in actions, in transformative positioning, to depower, to let go of power, and to seek ways, if you like, that allows others to gain power, to become empowered. And that's what the, you know, the difference between a facilitator and a teacher is that a facilitator is, is one who, in a way, uh, for me, it's like I facilitate your education to the extent of which I am no longer necessary. So I become redundant. If you become emancipated and empowered, then I become redundant. So you're there in, in seeing it as a means towards an end, whereas it's, it's not about, you know, self-aggrandizement. It's not about me uh, being the great teacher, me being the great uh, liberator. I think probably that means that a sense of, of extreme humility and extreme recognition that it's not that I know the world any better than anybody else. It's just that I know it in a different way. Um, and we know now that knowing the world um, you know, through science and technology as a means of dominating and controlling nature is not necessarily the best way of living with nature or living in nature. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm living in now in, in you know, North Roscommon and there are many people who live in nature around here who know more about that than I do. And it's, but it's a different form of knowledge, a different way of being in the world. And so it's about, you know, you can call these organic intellectuals. I mean, you know, a long history from Ferreri, from Gramsci, about, you know, working with people as a means of their creating their senses of, of, of freedom and emancipation. So 
Yeah, for me, there is a, that divide. You know, traditional education and training is about empowerment. It's external, it's formal, uh, and it's intellectual. Whereas for me, organic is based on emancipation. It's based, it's internal, it's informal, and it's experiential. It's about, you know, taking, if you like, the needs and interests of people uh, and where they are uh, at this particular time. So then the question is, is how do we become organic adult educators? For me, it's, it's about recognizing, understanding uh, power and the way it operates in our lives and then trying as best we can to let it go. Okay, uh, that's my spiel. Brilliant, Tom. That was absolutely uh, enlightening, eye-opening, uh, all of the things. And th- thanks a million for that. I really, really, really thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, we've had a few comments and questions down the side of the, the chat panel. So um, Fanola just mentioned about uh, the, the problematic use of the, of the word education even. So, so what I kind of uh, interpreted her question as being is that the word education itself, I suppose, carries with it a lot of social, cultural and, and historical baggage. I mean, do you think that, that it's a word that that maybe should be uh, <laughs> made, made redundant maybe and something needs to be changed or do we need a new word is there or a new set of concepts to define education through? Um, I'm not in favour of, 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 of that because, I mean, it, it's, um, you know, you could say it about any word like language or you could say it about power itself indeed. Um, I think it is about, you know, it, it is about questioning what goes on in education. I mean, it, it is supposed to be about leading, uh, but then the question is who's leading who, where, and for what reason. Uh, um, and, you know, in that formal education system, it was about that some people know best as to what is in your needs and interests. Okay, I've been extolling the virtues of an andragogic approach, and yet children have to learn language they have to learn their the, you know the basics of of um adding and and, and writing and reading and etc uh i I'm, i just you know so i think that a lot of of the basic principles of education are are sound i think what it is for me is that even a teacher in a primary school or in a secondary school uh just needs to be aware that again, not intentionally, they are dominating and oppressing uh, by their very actions, by their very presence, the way the school is structured, and that you know the education system, educators need to uh, think of of ways of getting children uh, to see and understand the conditions of their existence. Okay. Uh, so 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 the word the word should stick, but maybe we need to it needs to be redefined somewhat. Or yeah, oh, okay. A lot of people think that I because I, I I wrote so trenchantly about the the power of the Catholic Church that I'm against religion. Uh, well, I am. You know, I, I try to be a card carrying atheist. I find it difficult. But you know, religion is a huge force in 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 the world today. I mean, you know, ninety five percent of the people around the world believe in religion. And throughout history, it's been even higher. That's not to say that you know, can we reconceptualize what religion might be and to think differently about, you know, does it need to be patriarchal? Does it need to be based on a supernatural? Does it need to be, etc.? Uh, does it need to be based on individual salvation, which is my bugbear? 
Okay, great. Um, so uh, Michelle mentioned about um, uh, mar marginalised groups. So we need to have marginalised groups at the table, such as uh, Lynn Ron and Eileen Flynn in the Shannad. Uh, if we can see them and hear them, uh, we can have real cultural empathy. So I think that maybe uh, ref um, reflects back to a question that I popped up about what do you see the role uh, of cross-cultural empathy in Ireland playing in the emancipatory process? It is, uh, you know, remarkable how, you know, quickly, you know, and some of this is changing. But in, in, you know, there was you know, a, the debate as to you know, the, the, the gender uh, equality nation of, 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 of the cabinet and, and, and of the government and of them. But, um, I mean, we see it in, 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 in traveller groups. I mean, you know, it, it used to be that there were the travellers were not allowed to speak for themselves. I mean, it was there were there were, if you like, interest groups who spoke on their behalf. The same was with um, the disabled, uh, and but dare I say it was the same uh, for women. When I was growing up in Ireland in the nineteenth century, I mean, there was there were men who, who spoke on behalf of women. So, yes, there is a need for them to be at the table, and and you know that was one of the questions I think that Habermas didn't deal with uh, in, in, in talking about uh, his version of emancipation because you know, the problem is is you only get those people who, if you like, are self-confident, are articulate and who speak the language. So when you go into government, I mean, as I, I said about going into the bank, going into government, you know, to change, you have to adapt the language and the culture and the and and the ways of being and and, and talking and presenting, uh, that that is forms part of like traditional politics, and so when it comes to developing countries, I mean uh, yes they they need you know, to have represent their own representatives at the table, but there will always be representatives of of, of others. So even if you're a traveling, you are representing, speaking on behalf of. And then the question is, how authentic is that voice? I mean, how, uh, if, what I mean by authentic is, is there's always a danger of, you know, that it end up being said, well, uh, you know, Tom Inglis uh, pretends to be talking for, but he's really just talking for himself. Uh, he's interested in his own aggrandizement. He's interested in his own profile, and that was a criticism used in the disability group of you know somewhere you know that you know, these representatives became sucked into the system, and became if you like more system than the system themselves. I'm not going to mention names. <laughs> okay, so 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 maybe it's 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 there's a large part of it to do with the kind of the interplay between psychological and social pressures maybe yeah okay so um uh, uh, steph has just said um uh, working in adult education i really believe in the power of experiential learning um uh, of experiential learning and having a transformative impact however in recent years it seems that health and safety protocol is really having an impact on deep experientiality learning opportunities uh, have you seen a change in opportunities to engage with experiential learning over the years well, I'm going to have to you know, fess up here. I mean, I, I was heavily involved in adult education and I continued to write about it. Um, but I have you know, become less involved uh, in the last 20 years, absolutely. Um, and that, that's just simply of, 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 other, of other interests. 
yeah, I'm, I'm, I've always thought that for me, transformative learning is emotional. And that's what doesn't happen in formal education. What you do is, is you, um, you get rid of emotion. Um, uh, so if you're going to have, if you like, radical experiential ed- ed- transformative learning, you have to deal with emotions in a controlled way. So that's why theatre, Angus, Angustus Bowell, was always of interest. But using, um, using theatre and play and uh, to break down, um, if you like, because power becomes invested in your body. I mean, so the, you know, the, the suited man uh, is an old warrior dressed up in contemporary clothes. He says, I am a warrior. I mean, um, and so therefore, uh, you know, the first thing he asked a suited man to do is, is you know, show us your underpants. Um, uh, and, and because, I mean, you know, to take off your clothes uh, and to stand, not naked, but in your underpants, is, is you know, really transformative. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I'm not, obviously, because of Zoom, I'm not, you know, not wearing any trousers, but that's up for you to imagine, <laughs> not for me to. So it, all of this power that I'm talking about is invested in bodies. You know, that's why you know, the Pope wears all this regalia and, you know, these, you know, these things. And the Queen, likewise, but it, it trickles down to you know army colonels with all their stars and etc. I mean, it, 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 but it is about yeah. Ask ask some leading politician did they ever dress up as a woman, and if not, why not? <laughs> Great. Do you, do, you, do you mind if we use that uh, trouser uh, quote as a promotional quote for the podcast uh, when it goes out? Uh, it, it could be seen as magical thinking. <laughs> um, so we have another comment from uh, Michelle uh, are you concerned about the lack of diversity uh, in the teaching profession in Ireland we don't seem to meet requirements to have 1% diversity in public bodies as recommended by the Equality and Human Rights Commission when I was uh, involved in, in religion and in, in, in education uh, in the 1970s uh, the whole thing in the north was about you know the the whole divide between Catholic and Protestant education. And that led to a, a you know, the, the stranglehold that the church has and still has on, on, on education. Uh, and, you know, so diversity has, has been about creation of, of um, multi-denominational schools. But even within multi-denominational schools, that's a structural level. But um, yes, the more uh, there is an LGBT you know, teacher, the more there is a black teacher, the more there is a, you know, people from minorities, um, you know, that's uh, when we, you know, we will get closer to achieving uh, emancipatory education or uh, uh, within the education or the second level and third level system. Um, so I, I just have a, one more question myself. You, you mentioned um, earlier on um, about how systems of religion uh, um, might find the, the processes of, of dealing with environmental maybe and social issues in, in current times uh, kind, of, kind of difficult. Is that, is that because they, is that because they normalize focus on, on other areas of life where they de-emphasize uh, or take power away from what, what might be happening in those, those realms? Okay, we're kind of a bit off the subject here, but uh, you know, Laudato, Laudato Si is one of the best things I read about the environment and about the relationship between inequality and ecological sustainability. Uh, the problem is, is that it's born to blush 
uh, unseen because the main preoccupation of the, the church is individual salvation. And so as long as, as, as humans are obsessed with their own salvation and not with the salvation of, of the species and other species, um, and so that is really transformative learning. If there's any major um, change needed is that, uh, you know, the self-realization, you know, through the media, through the market, is attaining life after death by following the rules and regulations and teachings of Jesus. I'm sorry, but that's the main, for me, it's, it's that it places the saving of the individual soul as the primary uh, focus of attention. I just ask one question. It's a little unrelated, but um, I, I noticed that, uh, that, that you're, you're in the process of writing a book and, but I tried to look up to find out a little bit about what it is, and maybe you're uh, you're uh, not disposed to telling us at the moment. But uh, to to love a dog. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, well, for various different reasons, I I I I started moving away from writing about religion and the media and globalization and sex. Uh, well, it was it was after my wife Aileen died uh, fifteen years ago. And I started to write more about emotions and particularly about love. And um, because emotions and love were, were seen as, as things that belonged or, you know, to psychologists uh, or to psychology and that sociology didn't deal with love. And I, I, I hadn't, I kind of said, or I've hinted that about what's the opposite to power. Well, the opposite to power is, is love. And uh, um, so I wrote a, a memoir about my my life with Aileen, uh, and then uh, I realised that you know love is 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 a very uh, um, multi dimensional uh, part of being human, and uh, it's just that you know there's you know millions uh, of dogs that humans are in love with, and um, and when I read the the literature. There's there's a lot of what I would call dog lit books. I mean, like what I mean, a bit like chit lit. I mean, like uh, you know, my my fluffy is the best dog that ever existed. I'm madly in love with him, fluffy, and I go for walks, etc. And it wasn't getting at to for me what was the the conundrum. So I had this you know 17 year old dog that was deaf and blind and crapping and pissing, and I was wondering why I was still in love with it. So that's basically what the book is about. Okay, brilliant. That's a, a very emotive end to a fantastic talk. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Uh, uh, and yeah. I, I now can say that I can Zoom. Or can I? Maybe I need a credential. Will you give me a certificate saying that this man can Absolutely, Zoom? Yeah. I, 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 I'm writing it up as we talk. <laughs> uh, yeah, brilliant. Uh, listen, Tom, I think I speak for every of us, uh, all of us when I say that the, that was absolutely brilliant, uh, eye-opening and really, really interesting and, and engaging talk. And um, uh, we'd love to have you back again. Uh, we're getting loads of thanks going on down here. Oh, and today is Digital Dog Friendly Day in Ireland, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there you have it. Um, yeah, so everyone's saying, yeah, thanks very much. It was really interesting. Um, yeah, brilliant session. Finola said, uh, that's been fantastic. Thank you, Development Perspectives, for organising such a wonderful event. Well, thank you, Finola. <laughs> and Sheila Coyle, thanks a million. Very valuable talk. Look forward to reading your book. Uh, great. Okay. Tom, thank you very much, and uh, I'll hopefully talk to you soon. And uh, thank you, everybody, for, for attending this evening. Take care. CELTA presents Hear the World Differently. <laughs>